0: Here we goddamn go. Welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast where we hate our friends and make friends with our haters. Today, we are talking about comic 218, Goodbye for the Summer number one, which was originally posted on February 26, 2015. My name is Secret, and today I am joined by somebody with immensely tasteful sweatshirt options. Hi, I'm
1: Tomato, and I admired one of Secret's sweatshirts so much that I went out and bought one, and I am indeed wearing it now that it has come in the mail, although I note that Secret is not wearing the matching one, even though I made it clear that it had come.
0: I was relieved that I wasn't wearing that sweatshirt when I saw that you were. Were you hoping that I would? Mostly no, but some part of me, a little bit. I have two and a half sweatshirts, so eventually I'm going to have to be wearing that one. Speaking of sweatshirts, let's get into this comic. It's true, actually. Good segue. In Jack's old room at the house, Biddy is folding Shouters San Jose Sharks sweatshirts and weeping to Beyonce's halo when Jack runs in and kisses him. We made it. We made it here. (sighs) Yeah, here we are. All right. Well, I guess let's talk about the art first. I think it's good. Compliments to the artist.
1: Yeah, there's something about this this art which is really beautiful. And the lighting in particular has always struck me. It's really warm, but the whole thing feels really summery and really nostalgic and really emotional and really warm. There's just this, like, quality of the color and of the way the characters are drawn, which is so lush, I think maybe is the right word.
0: I mean, it is literally warm, like warm as a tone as opposed to cool. So that's true. I think that's something that you're picking up here. Something else that's happening is that there's a huge amount of blue in this comic. Like, Biddy's sweatshirt is blue, the walls of the room are blue. Much of this sweatshirt detritus that is all over the bed is blue. Jack is wearing blue pants and he has a blue tie and he has blue eyes, as you may have noticed. So it's a very, very blue comic. And in contrast to that, the trim and the furnishings in the room are all brown they're all wood but the way that Ngozi is interpreting the light hitting it is a sort of like mahogany like warm red undertone and it feels very much like afternoon light although I do have to say if I lived in the house I would probably be depressed because this quality of light is not good to live in at least not for me but it makes it for a very pretty webcomic
1: Actually, Biddy's seasonal affective disorder explains the whole thing. Maybe. Anyway, you did some you did some research into the drawing process for this, right?
0: Well, I think research is a really generous term, but yeah, um, in the back of the Year Two Kickstarter book, over pages over pages two hundred to two hundred four, and Ngozi gets into a little bit of what's happening in this comic and the following comic and she also talks about how it was painted this comic is a hybrid of digital and like traditional ink line work there's traditional ink brushwork on bristol board and then that she scanned in against the um, backdrop, which is a digital backdrop. And in the Kickstarter volume, she writes about how she wanted the background to be like really sturdy and really stable. And she does make these really sturdy, really stable, really durable backgrounds. But then the quality of the lines of the figures here are like a little more fluid, a little more loose a little more animated and I think the contrast even though it's really 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 subtle does create this like popping off the screen kind of vibrancy that puts a lot of life into the characters sometimes the concept in like art writing is called the hand of the artist where you can sort of either plainly see or perceive that there is a living person who physically created what you're looking at. And I would say that these strips and several of the panels that kind of populate the year to like end sequence that we've been looking at over the past couple episodes really have that quality. Like look at the movement in Jack's tie, sort of walking up to Biddy. And Biddy is saying, oh, my goodness, you can just feel like these are two sort of like people like moving toward each other. And I think that's the physical drawing quality layered on top of the background, which does seem stable, but it almost sort of like fades away. But there is something different
1: about the way that a pen puts ink into border paper than the way that a digital version of the same kind of pen will change widths depending on how you know hard you press it into a tablet or whatever like there is something a little more irregular or a little less predictable about it and I think you can just feel that not only in the way things are drawn in this like slightly looser style but also even if you look at the thickness of lines making up Jack and Biddy's hair the, the sort of way that Biddy looks surprised as they kiss and then kind of like leans into Jack, there's like something about that which feels really tender. And I think it's because it feels a little less algorithmic or
0: something than the really sturdy lines in the background. She says she did some digital editing or digital touching up after she scanned it in, which I guess means that whatever sort of line variance or physical sensation of like the figural drawings that remains is something that she sort of intentionally left in. But if you have the copy of the the year two Kickstarter book, flip to the end of it and you can see some of the like board drawings that she scanned in to create these strips. Also, in that panel I was describing where where Jack is walking up to Biddy, I never noticed before this reading, but um, Chowder has already put a San Jose Sharks poster up on the bookcase in that room.
1: So speaking of Chowder, what is Biddy doing when Jack comes into the room? Like,
0: why is he doing this? What is he okay 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 he's folding chowder's clothes
1: why (laughs) i don't understand i it took me i can't tell you how many times i had read this comic before i realized it was chowder's clothing like I was always just like, what is he doing? I don't know, he's packing, whatever. I'm not gonna think about it because I was so distracted by the emotional content of the rest of this trip. But now I've read this comic thousands of times. So when I went back to look at it, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was like, wait a second,
0: why are those chowders clothing? Jack has just moved out of the house. There's extras about Jack at the house while he and Biddy are getting ready to, like, go to graduation, asking Biddy for help, picking out what kind of tie he's going to wear. And then in the last comic, Biddy said that he was walking over from the house to the ceremony, like, with Jack and George and Jack's parents. Maybe we shouldn't be examining this this closely, but basically Jack has, like, just moved out. And then pretty much, like, during the graduation ceremony, Shouter has moved in. Biddy then leaves the graduation ceremony in tears, goes back to the house, changes out of his like nice graduation ceremony clothes and into jeans and a hoodie, and then goes into Chowder's bedroom that Chowder has just moved into, put up a San Jose Sharks poster and then left and Biddy starts unpacking and folding Shouter's clothes.
1: This is incomprehensible to me. Like, Like, whatever, it's fine. Sure, you know, give Biddy something to do with his hands while he weeps uh, so Jack can interrupt him. But I just find this like completely, I don't understand why it's happening this way instead of Biddy like folding his own laundry or like, I don't know, like,
0: you know, baking a pie or whatever. Well, I think Biddy is supposed to be going home. He's, I don't know, he's killing some time before his flight. So I don't know. He needs something that can, he can just take his mind off of what's happening, although that's really not what he's doing. I think also part of it is like imposing, Order and control on things. He has this caretaking kind of MO. Yeah, it's just like, why are you doing this for Chowder? Why does this need to be done now? Like, is Chowder living at the house over the summer? I don't understand. Like, Biddy is about to leave. His room is packed up. Like, in the previous strip, you see that his bed is stripped. So I don't totally know, like, if he's moving out for the summer to the point that he stripped his bed, why is Chowder getting unpacked? I, okay. And then it's also like, where is Chowder? Like in the, in the two hours since this elapsed, he put up a poster and then left all of his clothes everywhere. Like it just, I know we're not supposed to be thinking about this this much, but it is true that it makes no sense. Does this
1: count as a Chatter infantilization watch like alarm trigger? Because on the one hand, Chatter's not there. On the other hand, he hasn't apparently done any of his own unpacking and has left Biddy to fold his clothes for him. So I'm not really sure where this
0: where this is on the spectrum of like uh-oh to whatever, but I feel like it's somewhere. I don't know. I can't pun again intended, unpack it. But yeah, no, it, it's it's weird. And I also have always thought it was a little bit weird that this is what Biddy is doing. And I think it also was not like immediately clear to me the first, you know, 50 times I saw this strip, like exactly what he was doing. I don't know how much we really would have to say about this or want to say about it, but he is crying. And listening to and singing along to the song Halo. And we have talked on this podcast before about what this song is and what it means. It's emblematic for Jack and Biddy. I think it kind of works like both ways because they're two guys who start out not really liking and trusting each other. But then... You know, ultimately, they both sort of, like, let each other... They let their defenses down and, like, let each other in, so to speak, and become friends, and then paramours. Something that's a little weird to me about this is the fact that he's crying and singing along at the same time. I guess we just need that to be happening because he was basically in the same position at the start of this year of the comics singing along to the song very loudly. People make a lot about how this comic has bookends in it. Something happens at the beginning of every year that is sort of revisited at the end, gesturally or thematically. And here, obviously, it's like this song, Halo how effective is this as a bookend? Like what have we learned?
1: I thought it was
0: effective
1: when I first saw it. When I first saw this comic, I lost my mind. I was one of the many, many people who just like lost my shit completely and got really excited. And and I think the reason that it felt really effective at that time is, A, it's not a strip that demands super close reading. So when you feel a parallel and and you haven't reread the comic thousands and thousands of times yet because you're not yet an obsessed fan, you feel the presence of Halo and it feels like a callback, but maybe you haven't read that strip in a while. So it it feels like a nice reminder of where Biddy came from, you know, the journey of his year and then to have Halo remind you where he came from to lead to a kiss feels really, like, emotionally effective. Um, And it does feel in this moment like the walls are crumbling down, right? Like, they've gotten to each other. Suddenly, this vulnerable moment is happening between them and all of the sort of, like, sparks that you felt or thought you felt, which upon rereading were not there, between the two characters are finally culminating, you know, in, like, a a real romantic moment. Upon reading it now and more closely and knowing where the story goes and knowing what kind of walls we kind of don't look at or think about, it's not as effective. If Jack's interiority was at all examined in in the following strips, or if we got a better sense of Biddy's interiority and kind of like got a better sense of their relationship, yeah, I think it could still kind of work as a gateway into this relationship. But as it stands that relationship ends up feeling ever more rigid.
0: I do think sometimes callbacks are made sort of for no reason other than to just acknowledge the kind of interior or internal mythology of the story that you're reading. As a motif, this song really does summarize as a leitmotif like where they've gone from strip 2.1 to strip 2.18 but there's not that much in the middle to sort of demonstrate the falling down process as as you indicate it's like why why are we bringing this back he's standing in the room adjacent to the bathroom where he was at the beginning of the year when jack yelled at him for being annoying And I guess Jack is barging in on him again, singing Halo and like interrupting him and pulling him out of whatever it is that he's doing.
1: There's something happening here where the writing is not about the writing. The writing is about emotional impact. In a lot of the comic, the thought about the writing, I think from the authorial perspective is less about, does this make a good story or does this make an in- internally cohesive narrative and more, is this going to leave the kind of emotional moment with the reader that I want it to leave? And I think in this moment, the callback, you know, thematically, yeah, it doesn't really do that much beyond remind you like, oh, Jack Zimmerman keeps his mother's clothing and dresses in it every night. You know, there's that element of memory but I think also because in the fandom right and because the kind of people who are reading this comic and who are really devoted to it have built up this like relationship with that song I think the song now is more doing work to like press on the emotional memory centers of the readers than to do any sort of like narrative work which which by the way is like not a bad way to write a story that has an emotional impact I tend to think stories are more effective when that impact and narrative impact are considered together, but whatever. I think that's what it's doing. It's like serving this kind of like, yeah, interactive emotional center purpose rather than any kind of like deep narrative meaning other than like, okay, yeah, they kissed, so clearly their walls have tumbled down. You also wanted to know, okay, so we've sort of figured out what Biddy's doing. Sort of. He's crying and folding clothing and singing, sure.
0: What's Jack doing? Oh, God. (laughs) Jack is being very impulsive. The narrative around Jack Zimmerman, that's the paratext, let's say, is that he can only do things at 0% or 110%. And I believe we're meant to feel that this is a good thing. He's passionate. And he really cares about the things he really cares about. But I would posit that this is not a healthy way to live. I mean, it's certainly a character trait, like it's a really clear character trait. But the idea that you either are way over the top too much about the minority of things that you really care about and feel strongly about and everything else you refuse to even engage with to the point where you can't even conceive of it is, is just like not a healthy way to live. I agree. As someone who lives that way, it's not good for you. Something I thought about multiple times, and again, I, we are going to circle back around to this, is, is basically like, why the immediacy? Where it was like, as soon as he had a synapse, he immediately had to act on like his one base impulse. I know we're supposed to find this like romantic and passionate and like endearing and like he's crazy that he's crazy in love and like, this is supposed to be a good thing. Yeah, it's just this this weird like amoeba like way to live where you get like an impulse, like an electrical impulse, and immediately you have to like go and do that without thinking about it, without thinking through, like, maybe I should process my feelings a little. Maybe I should think about how I want to act on this feeling I just had. Jack doesn't do that. He can't do that.
1: You know, whether intentional or not, I think this is like a real phenomenon experienced by lots of people with anxiety or other kinds of mental illness that affects processing and emotional processing like I think that this is a common trait I think in that way it's like really effective characterization I don't know if it's purposeful or not I don't know if we're just supposed to you know sort of map like the romantic hero on top of Jack in this moment but I think it works but what I thought was really interesting is that in this moment I had this feeling like there's this and I don't know if there's Is actually a word for this, so I just made it up and I'm going to call it the queer precipice where there's this like now or never kind of insistence, which gets attached culturally or emotionally to these moments, sharing in some significant way your queer identity. So that could be coming out, that could be kissing somebody, that could be, you know, letting someone know something about you that is related to your identity in some way. As someone who has experienced those moments and has experienced that sort of feeling of like, I have to do this now or else I'll never do it or something like that. I think that is a fairly real phenomenon. And I also remember reacting really viscerally to Elliot Page. The first time he came out in public clearly had to, to force himself to say it in this particular way that for some reason, thinking about Jack in this moment really made me think of, and it also made me think of these other moments in my life where I have felt sort of on the verge of this precipice. Whether it's something emotional happening there or whether there's like a cultural narrative around how we deal with queerness that that leads to this kind of like moment of forcing the self or this moment of reactivity. You know, I don't know. I think there's something there. And I do sort of see that reflected in this moment with Jack.
0: So I think that's very interesting because it stands in contrast to... The way that I have kind of been taught to think about, I don't know, queer lives, there's this idea that is called like queer time or queer temporality, which basically posits that So all of the markers of sort of like the human life progressing through its own chronology are things that like queer people typically have not experienced in the same way. I think if you're really into Jack and Biddy and you're really into the project of Check, Please, then you think that the acceleration with which this is happening is a good thing because it's basically saying i'm rejecting this idea that queer people can't have this ugh god the word is like chrononormativity but what an awful word i think that's what like a what like a zimbitsy like you know yay check please attitude toward the acceleration that Jack seems to be on would be. On the other hand, there's how I kind of feel about it, which is just like, why are you fucking, like, rushing into this? Like, step back for just a second and, like, think about it. I guess I can't say Biddy's not going anywhere because he's about to go to Georgia, but, like, they're both going to be living within 40 minutes of each other for at least the next two years. Biddy doesn't date people. And there's no real reason why this all has to elapse immediately.
1: I'm going to revise my fake definition of a concept that doesn't exist, the queer precipice, by saying that I think coming out or sort of revealing an aspect of identity is, is an important part of the queer precipice. And I think the reason is it's an attempt to realign with uh, the horrible word that you said, chrononormativity or something. There's like this sense of like, by revealing this thing about myself, I will be able to connect to a broader Thing. And then usually what happens is like rejection in my, in my experience of like, you know, trying to figure out how to um, talk about this, like, like usually you have to push yourself to come out or something because you're in a situation that is going to be stressful, at least in my experience. And so even if you don't get rejection in that moment, there is this eventual rejection by society or, or something, right? It's this like forcing oneself into a time or into a, a mode, which is like not necessarily actually going to be receptive thinking about Jack sort of rushing in this moment and feeling like the compulsion to act check, please treats this pushing oneself into a normative mode or into a some sort of model of mainstream, like success or something as actualization. And so the faster, like as soon as he has the realization that he can do this thing or can feel this thing, it is like the morally correct don't know morally correct it is the like appropriate response to actualize by acting on it because it is the next step in their romance and that is like and and it it gives Biddy what he wants which again like we know is a thesis of the comic because mgozi has said it Biddy gets what he wants and i also wish he didn't feel it it makes me feel
0: weird do we think that the comic is or the let's say the the creator of the comic is thinking about these things in this way Absolutely not. I think that she is drawing a
1: cute romance comic following romance tropes and was probably not thinking deeply about where those tropes came from or how they might be adapted or not adapted for this particular couple of people.
0: So what do we think that uh, this comic is actually doing? It's not talking about chrononormativity, I don't think. Not sure it's interested in that. At least not on purpose. (laughs) Well, we're all a little interested in chrononormativity, tomato. Admit it. Since the pandemic
1: started and time stopped, I'm fascinated by chrononormativity. And I think about it every day. Uh, So I have this kind of like insane theory about what's happening here. And I'm going to ask you all to go with me on a brief journey. You may have uh, heard me talk about French theorists before because unfortunately I have a personality problem and I just like thinking about them all the time. And one of them is this guy named Roland Barthes. You don't need to know that much about him. He's French, got run over by a truck once and then he died, it was sad. Anyway, he has written quite a bit. He's most well-known in English speaking, you know, fan communities for the death of the author which is a concept we talk about a lot. Barthes has this idea about two kinds of texts. A text of plaisir, which is the text of pleasure. It's a text that is guided. It lets you know how to read it. Like a normal book would be, you know, a normal novel would be a text of plaisir because it teaches you how to read it and you can just like read it normally. Then there's a text de jouissance, which is like an orgasmic pleasure. Thanks, Bart. And this is a kind of text that is open. It's a text that needs interpretation and it needs like the the help of the reader to kind of like figure out what the text is about. I want to use that idea of an open text or a text that has like, reader collaboration and part of it to talk about this panel because i think it's like part of what this comic is doing and part of why the structure of this comic is kind of weird you pointed out on our outline that this this structure is bad (laughs) like this panel is essentially the climax of the entire comic and i agree part of the problem of check please and part of the problem of how the structure is not so effective after this moment has to do with how this moment happens. Because the whole comic up until this point has been a series of romance tropes, right? And we all know it's going to be fulfilled and we all know how it's going to be fulfilled because Ngozi keeps telling us it's going to be fulfilled in this pretty predictable way. If you fulfill things in a predictable way in the middle of a story and you don't question it afterwards or you don't examine it afterwards, you just kind of keep going with those tropes, It tends to not be that satisfying, at least for a certain kind of reader, because readers will tend to start asking questions that the trope is not actually rigorous enough to handle. People are going to start asking, well, how do they like each other? Why do they like each other? Like, what's happening here? And some readers will be fine. They'll just go on reading passively and not really feel that invitation to interpret. But lots of fans, particularly in this very paratextual heavy, text are really interested in the text and are actively interpreting, like their interpretation is part of how they read. And so when you fulfill a trope for that kind of reader and then don't do anything with it after, they're going to start to get a little dissatisfied. So to very briefly kind of talk about why I think this is happening, tropes are kind of open text. Um, When we read fanfic and there are certain tropes, like tropes get defined collaboratively as part of a community and then they're reiterated and reiterated and reiterated with that community, they're explored within that community and then, then they come to mean something within that community. There was only one bed doesn't mean anything if you're not in fandom or romance, but if you are, it all of a sudden becomes imbued with meaning. Because of this comic's use of tropes, the comic is inviting readers into the text in a way that is collaborative because the reason that Biddy and Jack's romance works, especially which we see now having gone through the comic and being like, oh yeah, like, are they in love? It doesn't seem like there's a lot of like work being done on the page to show that. The reason we all agree they're in love is that we recognize the roles that they're playing within their romance trope. And therefore we all agree that they're in love. So now they're in love. So then when the trope ends and isn't replaced effectively by either another trope or Examination of the first trope readers who have become really invested in the text and who have started like making fan work or have started becoming active interpreters as opposed to sort of passive receivers end up not having anything to collaborate on because some readers, like I said, will like pass go back to passively reading the comic, they're not going to be active interpreters, they're just going to be like, Okay, I accept what the comic gives me and it's cool, but other readers are not going to be able to do that, particularly since reader involvement has also drastically changed because the Twitter has just been shut down and won't be turned on again. So this like very important role of reader interactivity has suddenly been denied, both through the fulfillment of this trope and through the shutting down of like paratexts and Ask and the Twitter and so on, that readers actually really had like real agency in the text. It's a bad structure both because like, yeah, why would you put the climax in the middle of the story before everything's done? Which to me indicates that in fact this wasn't meant to be the climax of the story and ended up that way for reasons that I'm sure we'll look at as we go through year three. This moment and the way that it ends up acting as kind of like a linchpin for the whole comic is indicative of one of the ways that the comic begins to fail its readers. I don't want to say fail, but begins to like start to reap the consequences of the interpretive act of reading that it was inviting from a certain kind of reader. And when people start to get dissatisfied, I think the comic ends up being very displeased at having too active a readership. This moment is collaborative. The only reason, yeah, the only reason that we think Biddy and Jack are in love is because we recognize the tropes they're acting. This sense that Jack and Biddy have a romance happening off screen, which I think is something that Ngozi plays up. I think that's totally connected to the fact of an interpretive readership or like inviting a certain kind of interpretive readership because having an interpretive readership means you as the author have to do less of a certain kind of work, which is not a bad thing at all. That's like something I'm really interested in in terms of writing. Yeah, I mean, put a pin in it, but I I think there's something happening there, collaborative storytelling that I don't think Ngozi now would admit to. Maybe, Maybe admit to is the wrong word. That's too strong. But I don't think Ngozi either did deliberately or like would talk about as a deliberate
0: choice. I mean, in some senses, this particular strip is like the height. It it really is the climax of the story. It's the emotional crest of the whole thing. It also breaks a lot of the tension in a way that is never able to be recaptured, at least for me, through the rest of the story. And it also throws into doubt what, in fact, this comic is actually about. If we're resolving the primary conflict of years one and two at the end of year two, then what, in fact, are we doing here? We're just following the rest of Biddy's college career. The
1: comic keeps introducing little potential tension raisers the problem is that it doesn't treat any of them with the same depth and length that it treats Jack and Biddy none of those well we'll see as we go but I suspect that none of them attempt to have the same kind of like sustained tension and that's one of the problems And Ngozi doesn't like reintroduce us to how to read the script how to read the comic in this new world where the original tension has broken Jack and Biddy's kiss, which for some reason, I feel slightly bananas about, and I am sure we'll have more to talk about it next time too. There's no need to beat a dead horse here. We know that Jack is tall, dark, and handsome, and Biddy is a blonde twink, and they're in love, or at least they're making out, or kissing. Is this making out? Something about this kiss, really freaks me out. <laughs> and I'm not totally sure what it is. Biddy is surprised for a couple seconds. And then he immediately sinks into the kiss, which like totally makes sense based on what we know about him. And the fact that he's been in love with Jack supposedly, or at least had infatuation with him for like, you know, however many strips, but I feel really weird about how pliant he goes. And like, I am not totally sure why, but it, freaks me out my best guess is power differential question mark so I was wondering whether you had a similar reaction or if you had any thoughts about that
0: I have many thoughts about this tomato thank you for asking if I had some thoughts no matter how much I like somebody if they walked up to me from behind while I had headphones on and grabbed me and kissed me I would be freaked out freaked the fuck out somebody walked up to me if I was wearing headphones in the middle of folding clothes and I thought I was alone, my reaction wouldn't be to say, oh, hello. It would be to scream. But I don't know. I guess me and Biddy have just been socialized differently. This is what I wanted to get at with my testing of Jack's impulsivity and his acceleration of this process. I'm certainly not saying that this is anything close to like a rape scene or what you would call like non-con, but there is an element here that Jack just does this, like without Biddy's consent. It seems as though he's just presuming Of course, he's presuming correctly, but he's still presuming that he will have Biddy's consent or that it's not even a question he has to ask himself. But they exchange no conversation here. Jack just kisses him. And like, we know that Biddy is receptive to it. But the fact that it's just, it goes from Jack having a realization to 10 minutes later, his tongue is in Biddy's mouth without them having any sort of like exchange about feels really weird to me. And like, by no means am I saying that like, this is rapey or that Jack is a sexual predator or that he's assaulting Biddy or anything like that. I think if, he had guessed wrong and Biddy had been like, get off of me, it would be a different situation. I would like the opportunity to have a conversation with them about what's gonna happen before it happens. In a Watsonian sense, what bearing the fact that Jack like does this without talking to Biddy first. Ends up having on like what happens next for them and within their relationship. I
1: briefly want to say that there is this panel before they actually kiss where Jack sort of like hold like is grabbing. Biddy, or it looks like he might be grabbing Biddy, and he looks down at him and there's this ellipsis and a speech bubble between them and it feels like that moment is them looking at each other kind of understanding what's about to happen but they still don't actually talk about it so although I think there is a nod to this like you can almost get the sense of what it would be like or a movie the kind of music that might be playing or like the sort of way they'd be looking at each other you can get the sense that there's some kind of nonverbal communication happening there but yeah, it because Biddy is still so wide-eyed and surprised when Jack actually kisses him, it just doesn't feel like they're on the same page. And then all of a sudden, Biddy just melts in Jack's arms in a
0: way that I feel weird about. Biddy is surprised. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He has a look of shock on his face. And yes, it, it dissipates very quickly, and he, like, closes his eyes romantically but I don't think he knows what's going to happen. I think
1: that we know what's going to happen, right? Like we as the readers know what's about to happen and Jack knows what's about to happen. And that's another piece of that, like interpretive reading. Well, I say we, what I really mean is I, like, I don't know how you felt about this. I don't know how anyone else feels about this. this is how I feel about it. Is that like my expectations of the romance trope are being put into this
0: and making Jack's lack of communication retroactively fine. I don't know, I guess Jack is always just like putting ellipses between himself and and another man's mouth, I guess. How long do those ellipses last for? Sometimes, quite a while. (sighs) How dare you quote my own paratext back at me. Listen, first of all, we have a visitor on the scene, and he's here to cause chaos. Second God, of all, this cat smells just like... <laughs>
1: um, second of all, I request that you please tell us the story of the first time that you saw this picture on Tumblr.
0: Well, I think story is a really generous term. But uh, yeah, my reaction or like the thing that came to mind for me. And yes, I've said this a million times. When I saw that very last panel in this comic was that it looked like I was about to say Destiel, but I think it's the Castiel and Butters. That's what came to mind for me. I was like, oh, So just to be clear, it's the Misha Collins guy and the South Park character, Butters. That's what I thought of. I think it's very funny that that's what I thought. And when I say that's what I thought, no, I don't think I actually seriously thought this was like... Castile and, like, Butters fan art. But for whatever reason, those were, like, the references that I had in my head to grasp onto when I started seeing, like, tons of people reblogging this. And it was just as an isolated image floating across my Tumblr F list or whatever, their dashboard. The reason why I thought this looked like... I keep wanting to say Destial. I, I know that's not like what his name is. The reason why I thought this is Misha Collins was because, how do I put this? Like, I didn't know Jack was wearing a graduation robe. I thought he was wearing a trench coat. I thought it was somebody wearing a trench coat. I thought it was an adult man wearing a trench coat. That's what I thought. Having never seen or like read the rest of Check, Please, I can't believe I I'm telling this story. This iconic... Iconic panel. I'm I'm treating like this. But that was what I thought when I started seeing tons of people just like sending this like across my notice repeatedly that this was like a middle aged man kissing, you know, an aged up high school version of a South Park character. And, like, Biddy kind of looks like how people imagine Butters would look in high school. So that's not that weird. But I'm sorry, this image just looks like a man kissing a boy. I know it's not, and I'm not condemning it. Don't worry. I have plenty to condemn, and I will. Like, I don't think it's actually pedophilic. I don't actually think that like anything truly like egregiously wrong is happening here. I think within this Jack relationship, there's, uh, let's just say some interesting power dynamics that we're going to have a lot of fun talking about, but it's not that I think that any like egregious wrongdoing is occurring, but if you look at them and just sort of do visual analysis, their posture their size in relation to each other, and how they're constructed makes Jack look like a man and Biddy look like a boy. And in some cases that's really true. Like Biddy is barely 20 years old. Jack is about to be 25. Jack is graduating college and going to move into a two bed, two bath condo that he is the owner of. And he has, like, a a million-something-dollar-a-year salary. And Biddy is living in a frat house where there aren't even lampshades. I guess when Jack moved out, he took the lampshade. So in a lot of senses, he is a man and a boy, Just, like, look at Jack. He's in a collared shirt, brown shoes, which makes me feel crazy. But you know what? I guess he has to do what he has to do. And a tie. And his hair is slicked back. I know it's come undone a little bit, but his hair is, like, greased back. And his entire face and body is lots and lots of angles. His hand is the size of Biddy's entire face. And his wide stance is enveloping Biddy entirely. Biddy is effectively subsumed by Jack's figure. Biddy's posture is a bit more of a sort of like S-curve. He is, I don't know, almost being consumed by Jack. You can really see why this is the feeling that I get. That It's like a man and a boy... And one of the figures is in control, and one of the figure is allowing himself to be controlled. Legally, it's totally above board. Biddy is clearly into it. He has a crush on this guy. He obviously wants this. So I'm not saying it's like cancel check, please, or anything like that. But I think it's important to like describe where people get their critiques from, because it's not just people who are like saying things because they're angry about Ngozi having success. It's like they're responding very genuinely to what is being presented to them through visual language. And it's a beautiful panel. It's absolutely beautiful. It's like sumptuous. You could stare at this panel for a really long time. I also like the sort of standard issue dorm room chair that for liability purposes can never fall over. It'll just fall back onto its slanty legs. Maybe there's a metaphor somewhere in there, but I don't know what it is. No, but put a pin in it also because you will see Biddy sit in that chair next trip. But like this image is iconic. It's absolutely iconic. And I think for good reason, it's really beautiful. But that doesn't mean it's not worth unpacking. I might even argue that an image
1: decontextualized that gets a lot of traction, and attracts many people to its origin is extra worth unpacking, potentially. I remember this moment being really important and being really emotionally impacted by this panel and seeing it go around and around and around Tumblr. I didn't have that reaction then. I was very excited by the fact that this kiss had happened. And between then and now, I don't know, something shifted and I wanted to start examining the comic much more closely.
0: You met me and I was like, I'm a big bitch. And you said, oh, it's true, you are. And here we are. I feel like I probably said it like, oh, true, you are.
1: You know, there was an excitement about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, even blogs I was following on my South Park Tumblr, I followed nobody who was, like, in Sheck fandom or, like, produced Sheck works or, like, had anything more than, like, a cursory interest in it. Like, all of these people started reblogging this. What this looks like to an outside audience and what it is internally... Within the sort of like Check, Please! fandom or the larger Check, Please! project are kind of like two different things. A really beautiful, gorgeously, lushly, sensitively rendered image of two men kissing is relatively rare. Like, perhaps not within the scope of fan art on Tumblr, but like very little fan art on Tumblr is this accomplished or this high quality. People want to see an image like this because it fulfills their expectation based on like the genre expectations you laid out of who these people are and what they're doing. I think people are really into that and and people just love like sumptuous, gorgeous images that fit their ideas of like what it looks like when two men kiss. Paired with the fact that you've said several times going back to April now that having a, a gay ship become canon is relatively rare and of course it is much less rare than it used to be and of course it was never as rare in web comics as it is you know just like in general still this is just a sweet spot of like fervent support and to the naked eye it looks like something that you'd want to have on your blog. Now, what I will say is this is sort of in contrast to what Ngozi has been saying and what's been happening within the Check Please fandom up to this point, which is that Jack and Biddy are gonna kiss. Like, she's not ever been reticent about telling people that. Maybe people in Check Please fandom were unsure about when it would happen, but the fact that this would happen was never a mystery. And she's also been pushing like shippy art at her fan friends, her sort of like fanslash friends, the whole time, pretty much. And I think like Huddle One and perhaps also Huddle Two were already available. So it's not like there's nowhere, it's not like nobody's ever seen a picture of Jack and Biddy kissing before but within the main text of the comic. This, as I recall, still felt extremely exciting,
1: even though we knew it was going to happen, for the same reason that the fulfillment of a trope is really exciting. Like, it feels really good to read narrative cues and then have those cues pay off in the way that you want them to pay off. This is the kind of text... That Barge would call a text of pleasure, meaning uh, the text has taught you how to read it. This trope taught you how to read it, and now it's being fulfilled. It's like this kind of unctuous pleasure of like everything you hoped would happen happened. There's not. It's purely sweet. There's nothing sour about it. There's like something just like wonderful about that feeling, especially in community with other people. As part of what fandom's about. As far as the broader context of Tumblr at this time, I don't know, of course, what everyone was doing on Tumblr. I certainly was not on South Park Tumblr. But in my circles, a lot of people had, in the past couple of years, been deeply disappointed by several things. Sherlock series, whatever, the series that like everyone hated, or whether it was Captain America Civil War, and then hockey fandom, which I was adjacent to through friendship at that time relatively recently upset because of allegations against one of the most popular you know players that people wrote about so I think this also happened to hit a spot in hockey fandom some of whom had already been reading the comic and some of whom were just adjacent to it where like a lot of people in that community were looking for something to sort of shift their attentions into and I think that this image took off among disappointed fans as well for that reason. Plus, they do just look like two fandom dudes. Like, they look like the most fandom attractive dudes you've ever seen in this particular image. Ladies love a trench coat, you know? That's what Supernatural fans taught me. Mm Mm-hmm
0: the number of people that this particular image and this particular just like development brought into this fandom substantially changed this fandom there is a fan who works under the handle destination toast who mainly produces like fandom statistics And after Jack and Biddy became canon, so basically after this particular moment, the Check, Please! fandom exploded. An exponential amount more fan activity flooded in on AO3. Like statistically tracked, like this was the thing that took this from being a small sort of like niche fandom to like a medium sized fandom that everybody knew about, even if they weren't participating in it. Yeah. And like, I think it's worth saying I'm one of these new fans who came in because of this. Like, you know, I, I don't need to tell you what I was doing in 2016. I assure you it was awful you know, I saw this and like, I had been aware of check please, but I'd never read the comic and seeing this. I was like, okay, you know what? I'll, I'll read this. I'll go, I'll go look at this. I'll go check in in with it.
1: Yeah. And although I'd been reading the comic, it wasn't until after Jack and Bitty kissed that I was like, oh my God, fanfic. Um, And the fanfic also like overnight was a vastly different quantity and quality, I think. Not that the early fanfic was bad by any means, but the earlier fanfic tended to be like very brief vignettes, a lot of inside jokes. Um, Some of it was written by Ngozi's friends. You know, by this point, there was like a small fandom happening. People were writing fic, but it wasn't anything that like blew my socks off. And then after Jack and Biddy kissed, all of a sudden... There was just this explosion of speculation about what would happen after that. That was like really interesting to me for some reason that like the other kinds of speculation that had happened earlier weren't. So the fandom changed too and like the kinds of stories people produced.
0: That's really interesting because I sort of romanticize like pre-Jack and Biddy getting together fic. Like all of the really early, really high quality check please fanfics that come to mind for me when I think about is written before this. And there's a huge amount of, like, Jack Pars fic that's been written over the past year or so, like, in the real world, late 2014 into 2016. 2015, in some ways, was, like, the year of Jack Pars, I think, for fanfic. And there was tons and tons of speculation about what had happened between them. And then there were also a lot of fanfics that really plumbed the depths of, like... Jack's anxiety and his mental illness and his addiction problems. And there was a lot of speculation on what had happened to him and how was he going to go forward from that. And there was also, I think, a lot of speculation about what was going to happen to him. I think the presumption... On the part of a lot of Check Please writers, was that okay, Jack and Biddy are gonna have a really hard time getting together because Jack is gonna go into the NHL, he can't be out. How is Biddy going to cope with that? Will Biddy cope with that? I think there were a lot of open questions about what a Jack-Biddy relationship would look like. And until they got together in the comic, people really speculated hardcore. And you get all of these sort of like classic Check, Please fanfics that have all of these imaginings of what this moment is going to be like and most of them presume that it's not going to be a sweeping romantic gesture like this that it's going to be like painful and hard even if ultimately worth it because jack is a closeted gay drug addict who's going into one of the most notoriously homophobic industries he could possibly go into so how on earth could this possibly ever happen, let alone work? And I have this idea of Check Please Fanfic pre this moment as really investigating that. Whereas it's after this that like the project of Jack and Biddy Fanfic turns into essentially like replicating this moment instead of speculating on what a moment like this would be like. That might be
1: more true than my memory because I, now that you're saying that, I'm thinking, oh, maybe that is the case. Maybe it's just that I wasn't that interested in what I saw. And so I discovered all that really great fic, you know, after the fact and like, wasn't really thinking about the timeline during which it was written. And I know we've talked about this before. Oh, and I should say my relationship to fandom and fanfic now is pretty different than it was when I got into check fanfic. Like I was much less of a careful reader and I had a, I enjoyed writing fanfic, but I had a different relationship to like the commentary that fanfic offers on Canon and so on. I think I have like a more sophisticated relationship to fanfic now. Take that with a grain of salt too. Like maybe I just wasn't finding the fanfic I was interested in, but I don't know. There was, there was something about this moment that sparked, My interest in the fandom in a way that it hadn't been before. And I did read all of those really long classic, like, Adrilka's fic. I forget the name of, you know, all those fics. Maybe I'm waking up. I feel like for whatever reason, none of that stuff was, like, that exciting to me until all of a sudden this moment, like, clicked for me that all of that stuff was worth exploring. And then it took me a while to find the stuff I was really interested in. Shortly after this, it felt like, yeah, things became this sort of, like... Happy ending, happy ending, happy ending, which I wasn't that
0: into. Well, that's okay. I can't believe Jack and Biddy did the thing. What? I mean, I guess I didn't want to spoil you, but I feel like I strongly implied it every step of the way that Jack would kiss Biddy and Biddy would get to touch Jack's butt. TBA, TBD, etc. Well, it's happened. Hurrah! When, oh, when... Will
1: Biddy touch Jack's butt? That's my question.
0: Well, never, Tomato. He never will. I choose to believe that to this day they're married and Biddy has never touched his butt. Does hitting count as touching? <laughs> I don't know. Just putting your entire penis inside of a count? Well, I guess we'll find out. Keep listening to the podcast. Well, this uh, this strip just continues, in fact, with 2.19 Goodbye for the summer part two, which is what we're going to look at next time. I've been Secret, and you can follow me on SKRTOMG on Tumblr, or C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R on Tumblr, or Familiar on AO3. And I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatowrites.tumblr.com
1: or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can find our... Podcast on Podbean or on Spotify. And we will very soon have a website up at checkdisplease.xyz with our transcripts as we put them up. I'll see you next time. Ready for more kissing? I love when a man kisses a boy, you know?
0: I prefer when a boy kisses a man.
1: You know, I retract my previous statement and align my vote with yours. On that note, have a good night.
0: All right, Bye-bye. bye bye. Bye. Ugh! Stupid queer temporality. Check displeased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahingen.